It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Welcome to the money guy. Guys, I'm excited it's Friday. The Bulldogs actually won last week. Got a football game tomorrow where we're actually going to stay overnight in Athens. The only thing that was somewhat of a bummer this week, besides the financial markets being kind of a roller coaster, did y'all see the Braves? What a collapse. Holy cow. Braves and Red Sox. For, for our, for our uh, Boston fans out there, both of those teams. Holy cow. That's what's so funny is I have a friend that actually went to high school with, still one of my closest friends, now lives in that area. He wrote a funny email saying, hey, I was thinking about dropping the Braves and moving over to the Red Sox just because that's where my my home area is now, and they're just as much losers as the Braves (laughs) are. So this is the Money Guy Show. If you want to go check us out, money-guy.com. You can also – I mean, we have a lot of things going on. We have a brand-new YouTube channel that Bo's been posting some Money Minutes, and then we've also got a brand-new show that's going to be released – Probably mid to late of next week, we got some production work to be done over the weekend on it. But it's going to talk to you about how easy it is to be a millionaire and really who really wants to be a millionaire. And I think there's going to be some surprising things. And we're going to hit on some of that today because there was um, an article that came out in USA Today that was pretty incredible that talked about what it takes to become a millionaire. So we're going to cover that in some of the, the poll results because people... I tell you, they are scared, and that ties in because we're going to close out the show with a discussion on the twist, Operation Twist. Now, I have something I have to share with you because I'm going to let, I'm going to let Bo kind of lead us on the twist, but when I first heard the twist, this is what popped him up. Are you ready for this? Because this is something I asked Bo, and he didn't know what I was talking about. So all my listeners, because you all know how I'm kind of a pop culture type guy, and if, by the way, if you haven't seen... I almost hesitate to tell you about this. If you've gone to Facebook, <laughs> you can see, see that I'm a real pop culture type of guy by the shirts that I've worn on my, on my recent trip to Universal. So this is what I thought of when I heard Operation Twist. Tell me if this brings back memories for you. Remember, now if, you, if you need guidance, all you have to do is pretend you have a towel. And you and you move the the hips. That, that's that's what I, when I think of the twist. This is this is Chubby Decker, or Chubby Checker. I don't, Chubby Decker was a, a, a actually a hamburger, but that's what I thought of with the twist. So we're gonna kind of bring that in and let Bo give you some guidance on, on what that is. I've also got a, a great clip that I'm gonna have a guess who this is. I, I want every one of you out there to know that I just got to watch Brian Preston do the twist, and, and it was impressive. It was it was amazing to watch. These hips don't lie, do they? <laughs> Let me, um, let me actually get this thing back on track because there's one other thing we want to talk about that I, I think a lot of you guys have written me because you know I've been a big fan of Netflix. So I wanted to address your email because I think there's actually a learning principle that a lot of you guys can use for running your own business and just for life in general is Netflix is an incredible company. Have you all heard the story, Bo? I, I think I've shared it with you. Do you all know why Reed Hastings started Netflix? Well, I mean, that, I know now because we talked about it in show prep, but I think I did not know it before we talked about it. Well, it's, um, we, um, Reed Hastings rented Apollo 13, which I think most people, you know, who, who's your favorite actor in that movie? Uh, probably Tom Hanks. Well, that's what most people would say. But, but what's the real, what's the Brian Preston answer in that movie? 
Bill Paxton. Yeah, of course, Bill Paxton. <laughs> Chet, who doesn't? That's how. That's how funny. How full circle. That working at this office really is a Seinfeld episode because we were talking about weird science, and um, with with Nikki, one of our associates here, because she has never seen that movie, and we we're talking about how great Bill Paxton was, and then I, it cracked me up to find out that Netflix was completely started because of a Bill Paxton endeavor. <laughs> so he, he actually turned in, Reed Hastings turned in a movie for Apollo 13 late. He never, I, I didn't see in the, in where, whether it was Blockbuster, we can probably assume it's one of the big retail movie chains, and they, they gave him a bunch of fees for turning in late. So he got so ticked off in 1997 that he started Netflix. And this is, they, so they founded Netflix in 1997. They actually started mailing DVDs on a monthly subscription basis in September of 1999. Guess when I signed up to become a client? I am not on the third floor, not on the fourth floor of becoming a client at Netflix. I'm one of the ground floor clients because I signed up actually in September of 2000. So you, know, you have to realize they started in California for it to get out there into the mass and, and everybody to know who Netflix is. It took about a year to make it all the way from California over here to the, the east side of the country with, with Georgia and getting the right type of um, PR and marketing. So I did. I signed up in September of 2000. It says it right there on my Netflix screen. And I was, I'm just intrigued because the great company. I mean, when IPO came out in May of 2002 at $15 a share, they had their first profitable, profitable year in 2003. Some incredible things, and they've changed the entire entertainment landscape. But I think that they've messed up on a few things recently. And this is, these are the learning-type issues that I think my Money Guy listeners can take. First, they forgot the importance of ground-floor clients and existing relationships. And the reason I bring this up, and Bo has heard me talk about it, Nikki's heard me talk about it, is that we had a lunch with my first client, once I, since I went out on my own this week, I took Nikki up to meet with this client because she is my ground floor client. I mean, I, I tell her that I appreciate her immensely. I mean, I, if she needed me to come over, move furniture, paint walls, I'm there because she's that important. Because it's very easy, I think, you know, after your business reaches that critical mass, you start realizing clients are coming to you just off of your reputation, your brand, the service, and, and, and what you've put together. But when you first start a venture, those clients are really taking a risk. They're just as much as an entrepreneur as you, just in the fact that they're taking a risk on a brand new thought process, a brand new person who's not completely proven by the, the company and, and, and the brand. So I call my ground floor clients they're practically family. And I think that that stems from, if any of you have ever read the Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, there's a great quote in there concerning craving to be appreciated. Now listen to this. I wanted to, I wanted to kind of read this real quick, quick, quick paragraph here. And it talks about the needs of the average person. And this is very powerful stuff for you as an individual, and as a business person, to know how to, to really work with people. It says... There is one longing, almost as deep, almost um, as important as the desire for food or sleep, which is seldom gratified. It is what Freud called the desire to be great. It is what Dewey calls the desire to be important. Lincoln once began a letter saying, everybody likes a compliment. William James said, the deepest principle in human nature is the craving to be appreciated. He didn't speak, mind you, of the wish or the desire or the longing to be appreciated. He said the craving to be appreciated. And that is the core thing 
that I think, unfortunately, a great company like Netflix has missed out on is that craving to be appreciated is they forgot that your ground floor customers want to feel special, and they want you to know, you know, that they took the risk, too. And Netflix, this is not the first price increase. A lot of people have made a lot of big, you know, big deal about first, the 60% price increase, and then second, the whole change from splitting the DVD business from the streaming business. But I, I think that they have truly lost thought that maintaining existing clients is cheaper than the cost of acquiring brand new relationships. And, and why did they do this? Truthfully, the only thing I can think is they drank their own Kool-Aid. Right. Everybody started telling them how great Netflix was, how they had changed the world, which they had, and they totally, the pride, the arrogance built up to the point that they didn't think it mattered what they did because their service was so good, so great, that people go to do no matter what they did to them. And that's just not the way things work. And I think Netflix does need to be concerned, you know, uh, just for, uh, I, don't, I, I didn't put it as a business expense. I probably should just because I am, now using, podcast it, research, I am right? using it for research. I did sign up for Amazon Prime because I've been hearing a lot about Amazon Prime. I wanted to go out there and get my take on that. And I'll tell you, Netflix, I don't think, has a lot to be concerned about right now because the library of, of Amazon Prime is not as big as, as the Netflix streaming. And a lot of the stuff that's on Amazon Prime is already on Netflix streaming. So there's nothing to be concerned about, I don't think, if you're a Netflix person or if you're an executive at Netflix. But I could totally see how two to three, four years, if you're a movie studio, a cable company, uh, you know, a premium service like Stars was... You don't have to just go to Netflix anymore. There are several outlets that you can go shop things with. There's also in the background, I don't think their business model is going to work completely, but you've got Dish Network has acquired Blockbuster, and then there's even been speculation that they might be looking at Hulu. So there's some players out there that are trying to build up alternatives. So Netflix does need to be very aware that they've built this incredible brand image, but there are things on the horizon that could cause them trouble. Just the other learning pr principle I had on here um, is, you know, don't let that pride be the thing that takes you down, you know, because that's where you got to stay humble. I think that's what people really like when they find a successful person that also kind of can make fun of themselves and, and, and be humble. Um, the other thing I had on here is currently, and this is the second mistake, they're not putting much value on the synergy between DVD-Q and watching instantly. When I told my wife, hey, I want to drop the DVD, just go streaming only. She said, what about my DVD queue? I love my DVD queue. And I kind of liked how when we could build up a DVD queue with all the brand new movies coming out, and then as they became available on instant viewing, they just showed up in my queue. That synergy is going to be gone. Now, that doesn't mean that Reed Hastings doesn't know something that we don't, and this might be powerful for them, but I think they need to pay attention to that. I want to close it out with something good because I do like the company. Their library is vastly larger than Amazon Prime. I've already covered that. Their brand is built and recognizable. I also put, if you know, just being nice here, they did change the industry via technology. So they were one of those huge things we'll look back in history and see, hey, that was the, the point in time that things changed. And then last, I mean, this is an important one. We just had a whole discussion about Steve Jobs and Apple. You know, we, we, they've got a visionary that is at the helm of that company. So I'm, I'm hoping that this is just a hiccup for Reed He's kind of learned from this, and um, we can get back to good things. So that's my take on Netflix for all you guys that wondered, hey, what, Brian, what do you think? I know you've been with Netflix and talking about them for years. 
What's your thoughts on it? There you go. There's the take. So let's jump right into... Bo, did you want to add anything on the whole Netflix thing? No, I think I think what's funny is if, is if you've been watching, um, been watching the stock price, it really has kind of been a crazy, crazy ride out there in the market. So if you were someone who was able to take advantage of that big run up, kudos to you. But if you were someone who got kind of burned and got into the wrong time, it, um, you know, you might want to reevaluate that position. So Bo's, I, th- I think, more excited about this next topic because this this is right in his his wheelhouse of what he enjoys talking about with young people his age is what it takes to become a millionaire. I was really surprised this was on the front page of the USA Today, or at least it was on the iPad version of the USA Today. I don't know if the print version was the same thing, but I thought it was incredible. We actually were already, and this is why I know the world sometimes is all right, is because we already had put together our brand new YouTube um, discussion topic, and we're just putting together the show notes and everything else that we're going to use. And then this article comes out, and it kind of gives us that attaboy to know this is all working together because there's a brand new AP CNBC poll that really shows how scared and how lack of confidence there is out there in the marketplace right now. Because what they found is that 61% think it is extremely or very difficult to become a millionaire in the United States today. Wow. I mean, more than half of the people in this country think being a millionaire is an extremely, extremely difficult thing to happen. And I've shared with you guys, you know, you go read The Millionaire Next Door and the research shows it is that 80%, over 80% of your millionaires are first generation, meaning that these are people who are making, they're not coming into windfalls to make this money. It's through slow and steady, and, I, and that's why I liked that this affirmed, um, you know, all the research I've known over the years. But, but listen to this also. It says the number of millionaires, this is from the same research and this USA Today piece that came out from Sharon Epson, Epperson, um, she's with CNBC.com. It said the number of millionaires in the country is growing. The U.S. is more than 10 million. Despite the European debt crisis and the worries about the U.S. economy, a May 2011 report from Deloitte Center for Financial Services projects that the number of millionaire households in the U.S. will more than double to 20 and a half million in 2020, with combined wealth of $87 trillion, up from $39 trillion currently in 2011. So even though we have this pessimism from the U.S. consumer, the U.S. investor, who's saying, hey, 61% of us think that it's extremely hard or very difficult to become a millionaire, we've got all the research pointing to the fact that we're actually going to double the roles of how many people are going to, to be out there as millionaires and in addition to doubling the roles, we're going to take their, their wealth from $39 trillion up to $87 trillion. Pretty incredible stuff. Um, I also thought it was interesting. It said 62%. How close? It's amazing how close that was to 61%. But the same poll said essentially 6 in 10 residents say their confidence in investing has been shaken by recent volatility in the stock market. Right. That I hate saying that quote over and over again, but it, it, you can't help but think about the whole be greedy when others are fearful. Um, it goes on, and I, I thought this was very interesting. I take it this left turn with the, the article here, but it's, it's kind of interesting to see what it says. It says the respondents in the AB, AP CNBC poll say they're making saving and investing a top priority. The survey asked people what they would do with a million dollars if they found it. So if they came into a windfall, what would they do with that million dollars? And it showed that 31% would use that money for saving or investing, 17% on giving to the family, 14% on spending, 13% on paying down debt, 12% on buying real estate, 11% on charitable donations. Um, It says 
and this is where it kind of gives you the roadmap on how to do things. It says, in most cases, the road to financial security and retirement comes with steady savings, strategic investing, and probably a later retirement date than you may have envisioned at the start of your career. Keep these three rules in mind. And here they are. Number one, you need to live within your means. Duh. Okay. I'd say even live below them. Yeah, so that, that's a member our rule of thumb here is 15, 20% of your gross wages needs to be going to the future. You're going, wait a minute, Brian. You know, you love the million, you know, you love talking about the wealthy barber, and that's 10%. Hey, that book was written back before Social Security was about to implode upon itself. So I think, you know, 15 to 20% is the new 10%. You know, they talk about 40 is the new 30. Same thing. You know, 40 is the new 30. 15 to 20% of your gross wages is the new 10% because we don't have pensions, too. Um, the next, it says, next, you have to commit a saving a certain amount every month and stick to that goal. Now, we love us some dollar cost averaging here. I know we both, everybody at this firm practices that concept. I mean, no matter what's going on in the financial markets, we've got money coming into the markets and buying automatically, whether we're talking about our retirement plans, our 401ks, whether we're talking about our joint accounts, we've got it saving. And I thought there was a great slide here that we use in certain meetings that we got as a research report. And it talks about the value of systematic investing can be a value, valuable strategy, especially during periods of uncertainty. Okay, I'm looking around, definitely uncertain period that we're in right now. And it shows right here, it says, at the end of a 25-year period, and this is going from 1929, so this is right Hold before... Hold on, 1929, that, that kind of sounds kind of familiar. It sounds like the Great Depression. So from 1929 with the Dow Jones, it closed at 381. That was back on September 3rd of 1929, it was 381. And then it closed at the end, at November 23rd of 1954 at 383. So 25 years went past, and the market didn't make anything. Essentially got back right back. To, that's got not, right. That also, it might have made something. It had some dividends. That sounds kind of familiar, too, a little bit. So we've had this. They had, instead of having a lost decade, they had a lost quarter of a century. Yeah. Yeah. So you think, you look at that, and you go, gosh, I would stay the heck away from those financial markets. That's for somebody else. But if you look at this, if you were just buying systematically, if you were putting money in, $10,000 each year beginning on September 1st of 1929. That hypothetical investment on 19, uh, November of 1954 was two, that $260,000 investment, meaning putting that $10,000 in there for that period of time, be worth $1.5 million. 11.7 annualized rate of return. So you're saying that even even in the Great Depression, it was possible to become a millionaire if you just had a plan and stuck to it. Exactly, exactly what this article said. Next, number two, you have to commit to saving a certain amount every month and stick to that goal. Stick to that goal. I think that's the key part you underline. Um, so they go on, and then number three, because it did say three, you have to make sure your investments are in a diversified portfolio. We've been talking about that. It sounds like the money guy echo all over again. But I thought that was very interesting to talk about the Great Depression slide. It did have some numbers. I think we did even a better job than what they're going to do with our, our upcoming YouTube. But it says if you started with $10,000, earned 5% a year, and you were going to have a million dollars by the time you're 70, oof, hope I make it to 70, 25-year-old would have to save $450 a month, a 35-year-old $850 a month, a 45-year-old would have to save $1,700 a month, 55-year-olds because remember, they only have 15 years' worth of savings, have to save 4000 a month. Um, so that's kind of 
what does it take to be a millionaire? You know, kind of an excited thing, and Brian, I'll, I'll leave this up to you if you want to mention this, but you mentioned our, our favorite, one of our favorite guys, Mr. Buffett, talking about be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. You want to talk about kind of what, what's been going on well, lately there, with him? There is a first ever, a historic first. Warren Buffett is out there buying his own stock. So as he gives the advice of be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy, he knows everybody's scared to death. So what's he doing? He's buying. He's buying his holding, Berkshire Hathaway. He's actually out there. And there was actually, I just got a, a blast, you know, how your, your phone, your iPads will send you these push notifications. I got a push notification. I can't remember which one of my financial sites that sent it that said, uh, Mr. Buffett is giving an indicator that he's already started the acquiring process, so he sees no better time to go ahead and start gobbling up his own shares than right now. That kind of tells you a little bit of something. He thinks his stuff is cheap. There's a great deal of undervalue out there. You could see that when I did that fool's gold piece out there on YouTube. So there's a lot of exciting things. So let's move transition to our next segment. Bo, I'm going to let you take this, but I thought we do have a great kind of transition point. Um, so here's the question. And it's a rhetorical question. We know the answer to this, but Animal House or Ben Bernanke? Animal House or Ben Bernanke? Here, you ready for the quote? And then I'll read you the quote after we play it. Here it is. In this case, I think we have to go all out. I think this situation absolutely requires a really futile and stupid gesture be done on somebody's part. We're just the guys to do it. But uh, let me read that quote because sometimes it's a, you know, because of his emotion, it's Otter, of course, from Animal House. It says, this case, I think we have to go all out. I think this situation absolutely requires a really futile and stupid gesture be done on somebody's part, and we're just the guys to do it. Now, I'm not saying Ben Bernanke's stupid. I'm not one of these people that beats up on Helicopter Ben at all. I just think that Ben... Is they got interest rates at zero? That was a backhanded. Do you hear what you just said? I know that was a backhanded. I don't beat up on helicopter Ben at all. (laughs) If you don't know what helicopter Ben is, go Google that guys because it really is an entertaining thing to see why Ben Bernanke's nickname is Helicopter Ben. I'm not going to go into it because I want you to go do your own internet research. But I don't think it's a stupid gesture. I just think that it's one of those things where the you know they've got interest rates at zero. Everybody's looking at the Fed to say, hey, do something, or the president's over there looking and do something, Ben, you got to make something happen here. So they've come up with this, the twist, and I'm not going to go play chubby checker. Go, <laughs> go ahead, Bo. So essentially what has happened is the Fed has said, we need to do something to try to fix this problem. Well, the Fed controls, or the federal government does what's called monetary policy, and there are essentially three tools that they use when they're trying to conduct monetary policy. They can affect the discount rate, or the federal funds rate, they can do open market operations, which is buying or selling treasuries out in the open market, or they can affect bank uh, reserve requirements, how much banks are required to hold on reserve. Well, he came out, it's probably a month, month and a half ago, and essentially said, we're leaving Fed funds at zero, and we're leaving it there for at least the next two years. So with rates at zero, there's not a whole lot the federal government can do with rates. So they have to move to one of their other two policy techniques, and the one they selected were these open market operations, and this is what they're this is what they're going to do. Um, the Fed, their general uh, their general charge is that they have to their dual mandate is for maximum employment and stable prices, or in other words, controlling in inflation and expectations for inflation. So, with rates at zero, there's little impact that they can have on moving rates. So they decided to start buying and selling various maturities. What they've decided to do is from now until the middle of 2012, 
the Fed will sell $400 billion of short-term treasuries and buy $400 billion of long-term treasuries. And why, why would they do that? Um, the the answer is pretty simple. What they're trying to do is keep long-term interest rates low. And ultimately, what that means is they're trying to keep mortgage rates low right now because they think that if they can keep mortgage rates low, it will stimulate um, stimulate the, the housing market in this economy. And there's actually there's another reason why they're doing it, too. They're trying to make cash an unattractive investment. This, this policy is going to be great for borrowers, but not so great for savers because... They're saying that you give us your cash for two years, we're going to pay you close to 0%. So I, I know I don't know the number now, but I know back on September 30th, the number of cash on the sidelines was at like $8.3 between individual households as well as businesses. They're going to have to find somewhere to park that money. The Fed is saying, don't park it in cash because we're not going to give you any interest on that. And what they're hoping is ultimately that's going to drive money into capital reinvestment with businesses and financial investment by, by investors out there and consumers. Um, I, I think that, that the market, you know, we've seen kind of this crazy stuff. I don't think the market's reacting to this twist as much as all this stuff going on in Europe. I think there's really a lot of uncertainty in Europe right now. And, um, and, and the market's trying to digest whether or not these European leaders are going to step in and start making this t the, the tough decisions to get back on track. And it's not only Europe. I think, uh, I think there's just right now a breakdown in confidence across the board. That's exactly right. Um, you know, we, 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 need some, we need somebody to talk about shining heels and things are going to get better. And I, that's why I think also that the Fed, I really feel for Ben. I really do because I think that people are looking to him to make something happen but they're treating a symptom more so than the actual problem. The problem is the lack of confidence. And they've also, this is the reason we think that not much will change, is because Americans really have lost their taste for borrowing money. That's exactly um, right. We, we're kind of flipped the, the, the switch to where now we've gone the other way, where we're savers again. Um, if you look at the savings rates of Americans, we are doing incredible things. And I know what they're doing. It's exactly what Bo said. They're trying to make it where housing, you know, mortgage rates are historically low. But we've got research here. And Bo, you said you were going to release this stuff maybe next week to our yeah, premium members. Here's what I'm going to do. We we sent this client out. We sent out to some of our clients, actually all of our clients this past week. Next week, maybe Monday or Tuesday, I'll actually put this out on the premium section. So if you're a premium member, expect an e email from me just saying, hey, go check this out. We'll make it available for you guys. But, the, but what, what you're going to want to look at is there's some charts built into this commentary that we sent out. And it shows that even going back to the early 70s, I mean, we've got from the early 70s to now, the afford affordability factor of, of housing is at an all-time low. I mean, it's really incredible. So you can take things down as cheap as possible, but if there's not a taste for it, just making the interest rates lower is not going to make people, because we've already had the afford affordability factor is at a historical low period right now. So they're treating the symptom more than they're actually causing the, you know, looking at the cause, which is the confidence. People want to know where we're going. We don't just look at, hey, what, what we're doing in the next six months, 12 months. I mean, I, I, I was at um, my, my men's, you know, study group at my church, and we had to self-evaluate what our problems were with each other, you know, if we had flaws. And I said, and, and it really is one of those things, is that I'm always looking five to seven years in the future. Sometimes I don't enjoy now because I'm looking forward. And I think a lot of business owners are exactly that way, is that we, we're always looking forward five to seven years. So we're not worried about 12 to 18 months. We're worried about what's going to happen 
And I think that ties in beautifully to, to kind of this. This is what causes me to lose sleep. Bo, you're chuckling. You know I, why I'm smiling? Because that's kind of, it's one of those things like when you go into a job interview and they ask you, hey, what, are, what are your three biggest weaknesses? No, but and it essentially really is what a weakness of mine. You turn around your weakness and you say something that's weak, but it actually sounds really no, good. No, it, it's, it's why I'm good at this job, but it's also a, is a weakness that my poor wife has to struggle with <laughs> is because I am always looking down the road at the future. And sometimes I don't enjoy now because I'm always thinking ahead. And, and that, 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 I don't, I, believe me, it's a double-edged sword. It's, it is one of those things, it's a good thing and a bad thing. But I think that a lot of business owners, because you don't start a company. There was a great piece oh. in the Wall Street Journal, by the way, um, by Charles Schwab. That's right, Charles Schwab is a real person. Um, he started the, the, I think it was 1974 mm-hmm. is when Charles Schwab started Schwab. And it's, it's, it's incredible. It started with four people, I think, uh, essentially the, the old stereotype out of his house. And it's blown into the, the, the multi-billion dollar firm um, that, you know, a lot of people use for their personal investments. And he had a great piece talking about entrepreneurship. And that's one of the things that we hope that people will realize that's, that's what's going to help us. We get people excited about starting to, to start a business, do something for yourself, build that confidence up. We're going to do it. I get, you know, that's one of the things, just like I, I tried to end the Netflix talk on a positive note. Here, here, here's what we found out when we were putting together that who really wants to be a millionaire YouTube video that we're going to be put, releasing in the next week is that when you get compressed rates of returns during a period of time, you, we, how long have you heard we've been the lost decade? Now, I will tell you here at our firm, I don't believe that's the case. I think people who've had diversified portfolios, you, you have not had a completely lost decade. You haven't made a lot of money, but you've not had a zero or loss return. So, but if you look at what do we do in the 2000s? What was the average annual rate of return of the S&P 500, including dividends? I was shocked at this. It's actually a negative 1%. We also went back to the 70s, because a lot of people say it hasn't been this bad since the 70s. The 70s were 5.8%. So they were even better. But it still shows if you have a historical rate of return for the S&P 500, around 11%, we get in the 70s where it's compressed down to 5.8. To get back into historical averages, we've got to have a period of outsized performance. So what do you think it was in the 80s? Bo, you know the answer. 17.3% per year. Could, could, t- time out. T, T right here. Could you imagine... I mean, and, and people don't have to imagine it because people live through this, but imagine making 17% per year on your money for 10 years straight. Holy cow. And, and I'm not saying we're going to do that. I'm just saying just think about this from a statistical standpoint. The 90s, so we just left the, the decade of the 80s where it was 17.3% annualized average rate of return with dividends on the S&P to the 90s where it's 18.1%. Did you hear that? So you have 20 years, two decades, where have huge performance. And I can't help but ask myself, well, are things changing faster or slower than they did back in the, the 80s? Because a lot of people say, and this has nothing to do with, with politics, I think, because I think you look at the 80s, what happened? Personal computer. Mm-hmm. What happened in the 90s? Internet. The Internet. Now we've got this cloud. We've got people using mobile devices to do business where you could be truly, you could be on the beach somewhere. And I don't know if everybody would know that you're at the beach That's because exactly you have right. so much connectability to the world that you, you can be anywhere 
and do most of your business functions. So the world is tremendously smaller. I mean, we've shared that. That's why we have clients in several states, many states now, is because the world is a lot smaller place. And you can't tell me with innovation, it's not slowing down, guys. Y'all know how the process of innovation is. It actually accelerates over time, meaning that changes in technology happen at a much quicker pace. There's more things on the horizon that are going to change our life for the better. Yes, we're, you know, we've got this hangover from the debt of all these foreign countries. Um, you know, and these governments are finally getting their balance sheets or at least addressing their balance sheets. But we as consumers and individuals, we've already done this. You know, companies have already done this. That's why, I remember, we flipped the switch. We're savers now. We're not really, don't have a taste for borrowing money like we did in the past. Our federal government is finally having that conversation, too. These are the things we're going to be okay. One quick behavioral thought. The, the people who were investing in the 80s, they were tickled. The, the people in the 90s were investing in the 80s. But you know who was probably the most happy out of all of those people? Who? The ones who were investing in the 70s. The ones who are buying in at those super, super depressed, yep. really, really cruddy levels, imagine the pop they got when the 80s happened and when the 90s happened. It, just, it gets me excited about if, if you are someone who's still in the accumulation phase, really, really pick a plan and stick consistent because you're going to look back a decade from now and say, I'm so glad I was putting that money in back then. And that's kind of what happened with the Great Depression. That chart I talked about earlier is those people who were putting in they get that big pop when things do start to recover, and, you know, and, and they don't look back at that point. They, you know, everybody always looks at them and goes, how did they get their financial independence? They don't see the slow and steady race that made them there. And, and that's one of the things I don't think I say it enough. What most of my clients look like, we had a meeting last week with a brand-new client who, you know, right after we did the, the meeting, they go, you know, I wish I'd have found somebody like you earlier. And I always look at those as value-added moments, and I, I said, well, look, after we've proven ourselves even more, I'm going to ask you for friends and family that you can send our way. And I've heard this response many, many times, because this is what they said to us. And, and I kind of smile and smirk to myself. We don't know anybody else kind of like us. You know, we, do, we don't let people know what we have. They really are. Mo a lot of our clients are the millionaire next that's door. exactly right. And I think that's probably the way most people who have money, who live below their means, their neighbors, even their family members to a degree, don't even know what they have. So I would encourage you, try to be that millionaire next door. It's one of those things, if you can change your life just a little bit, you can have tremendous things and build yourself a life of financial independence and do all the things that you love. That's our goal here. We're going beyond common sense, restoring order to your financial chaos, and also building a nation of tightwads just like ourselves. So thanks so much for listening to the show today. Go check us out, money-guy.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel, Got a lot of new stuff coming up in the next week. And if you want to go see me with my fanny pack down at Universal Studios, go check us out on Facebook as well. I'm your host, Brian Preston. We'll talk to you in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.